Uh, when I was quite young, my brothers and I, I have two younger brothers, we were all, I'm the oldest, so I was maybe early elementary school, uh, very young. My parents purchased a new VCR. Now, this was both a uh, piece of cutting-edge technology at the time and a significant investment in our family entertainment. And so my dad decided that he was going to do some proactive parenting. So he got it in the TV cabinet, he got it hooked up, and then he brought my brothers and I out, and he showed us the new VCR, and he said, listen, this is for mom and dad, mostly dad, but for mom and dad. You are never to touch it, okay? And we said, yeah, okay, never touch it. He said, what did I, what did I say? What did you just agree not to do? And we, we all said, we agreed we will never touch it. He said, that's right. You don't need to touch anything in this cabinet. Uh, then he went to get my mom. He left us by the VCR because he wanted my mom to know that the, the law had been laid down, the boundaries had been established, and so he brings my mom back in. There my brothers and I are. We're lined up next to the, the, the VCR, and my dad says to my mom, now listen, I told them they're never to touch this VCR, and they have agreed. They understand they are not to touch it. Right, boys? Uh, to which I said, yes, I agree. One of my brothers, who I, I won't reveal which one, made direct eye contact with my dad. And he began slowly reaching his hand out toward the VCR. <laughs> my dad looked right back at him and said, don't do it. And my brother, without hesitating, without blinking, shoved his hand right through the opening where the VHS tape goes. We have all of us, at some point, at many points, behaved similarly toward our Heavenly Father. We have come to a moment, many moments in our lives, where we knew clearly what was right, we knew what would honor God, and we knew what obedience to him would require. And like my brother, we got to that moment and we just rejected it. We chose in that moment to exalt our desires, our plans, and our wisdom above his. Scripture, of course, calls this sin and testifies that the universal human condition, universal, is that we have all sinned. And this fundamental reality is visible nearly everywhere in the biblical narrative, uh, and it's put succinctly by John in the first verse of our passage this morning, 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And as he makes clear, this goes for everyone. And the consequences of those sins, both small and large, are, are on display not just in Scripture, but in our world, in our own lives. Sin does real damage to us and to those around us and to the good world that God has made. And that damage is greater than the sum of our sins. And what that all means is that humanity, corporately and individual human beings, we are all in over our heads. We are in a bad situation that we created and that is beyond our ability to remedy. And so the question this morning is, for all people everywhere, is not whether we will sin. We all do. The question is, what's to be done about it? And in reality, I think when you think about the possible responses, there are really, you could put them all into two big categories, two big options. Look with me, if you would, at 1 John 1, 8 to 2, 2. 
Here in 1 John, he writes this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I see two big categories there, two big options. And the first one right there in verse 8 is that we can simply ignore our sin. We can do our best to pretend that it isn't there or it's not that bad or that it doesn't really do any harm. And I must say, ignoring our sin can help ease the burden we feel. Look, John says, we occasionally succeed in deceiving ourselves. We may convince ourselves that, that after all, we we've, haven't really done anything to feel that bad about. But here's the rub. Ignoring our sin might make us feel better, but it will not change reality. And the reality right there in verse 8 is that we have all sinned, and that all sin does damage. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were watching America's Funniest Home Videos together, uh, and a video comes on, it opens up with the camera focused in on a, plate, uh, a tray of cupcakes that have been mauled. Uh, it looks like a wild animal got a hold of them. Every single one of them has either a bite or two missing or, or what looks like handfuls missing from these cupcakes. Uh, the camera then pans to a really cute two-year-old boy and we hear the voice of his dad. Uh, the boy is standing in the middle of the kitchen in a t-shirt and diaper and he has frosting all over his face in both hands. And the, dad, the voice of the dad says, TJ, did you get into these cupcakes? And the boy, without hesitating a second, looks right at his dad and says, no. And he says, you're telling me you didn't get into these cupcakes? You didn't eat any of these cupcakes? No. And then the, the camera pans to a stool pushed up to the counter where the cupcakes were. And the dad says, you didn't push that stool over to the counter, climb up, and get into these cupcakes? No. By now, we can hear some other family members starting to snicker and laugh a little bit. Uh, and the dad's, he's not laughing yet. He says, uh, I'm going to give you one last chance, TJ, one last chance to tell me the truth. Did you eat these cupcakes? And the boy, once more, without flinching, looks right at his dad and says, no. He is remarkably committed to a strategy of denial, it must be said, especially for somebody covered in frosting. And, you know, we don't know what's going on in that two-year-old mind. He might even believe that he is not actually to blame. But here's the thing. The damage to those cupcakes is real, and it can't be undone. You can't get those back. And no amount of pretending, no amount of self-deception is going to change it. Now, that's a trivial example, but the same, I think, is true for us. We can deny and ignore our sin all we want. We may even succeed in deceiving ourselves. Many have. But that will not change the reality, and it will not erase the damage that sin does. 
It will not erase our debt before a just and holy God. Now, let me pause for a second and go out on a limb. I'm going to assume that so far I am mostly preaching to the choir. My guess is that none of us here, none of you watching, if asked directly, would pretend that you have in fact never sinned. But I want to warn us about something else, a related temptation that I think is a particular danger for Christians. There is a temptation to, if not ignore, then to minimize our own sin by focusing instead on the sins of others. Maybe it's other people in the church. Oh man, did you hear about what they did? Did you see what they did last week? Maybe it's those of us in the church together focusing on the sins of those outside the church. Looking around and telling ourselves, I mean, after all, what what we do, it's not that bad. Not when you look at how other people are behaving out there. This, I think, is what we here need to watch out for. I know it's a temptation for me. And so I want to take a page out of John's book this morning and just be blunt. When we do that, when we take attention and and we turn it on other people instead of turning it on ourselves when we look to the speck in our neighbor's eye instead of looking first to the plank in our own, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I want to add that while we may fool ourselves, we are not fooling God. We might temporarily make ourselves feel better by doing that, but it will not change reality. If we want to deal with the reality of our sin we are going to need a different option. And that leads us to option two, the second big option I see in this passage. And that is simply to acknowledge our sin, to own up to what we have done, to look clearly at our sin and its consequences. This is very simply what John recommends in verse nine, to confess our sins. Now, this is a crucial, and I'll just add the correct First step. I'm not trying to be coy. Uh, The first option is the wrong option, if you didn't catch that. This is the correct option. We have to begin by confessing our sin, by acknowledging it. But then that opens up, I think, two further options. Uh, It's the right first step, but it's not the whole process. Uh, And I think that opens up two different ways forward. Once we acknowledge our, our sin, what then? Well, first, in view of our sin... We could work to put it right. We can try to use our own wisdom and our own power to fix it. And I want to say, this is not a bad impulse. It comes from a good place. We see our sin, we see the damage it does, and we want to try and make it better. We feel compelled to put it right. There's just one big problem with that. And that is, of course, that we can't do it. We have neither the power nor the wisdom to put it right. A few months ago, I was at my, what's become my favorite spot for oil changes, uh, Kennedy Transmission. Uh, they're not paying me. They don't know I'm, I'm giving them this free publicity here. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm in there. It's a small operation. I'm in the waiting room. I'm the only room one there. Uh, and as I'm sitting there just waiting, uh, another guy walks in the door wearing the uniform of another car repair place. And I thought, well, it's kind of interesting. Maybe they just know each other. Uh, He walks up to the counter, starts talking to the guy from Kennedy. I can't hear what he says. He's got his back to me. But whatever he said, the guy at the counter responded like this. Okay, bring it over. I'll talk to the guys. I'll see if anyone wants to stay late to work on it for you. 
Oh, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So the guy leaves, and I, I was really curious. I mean, decided I was going to be nosy. So I asked the guy, I said, hey, what was that all about? And he said, well, let's just say there's a number of places around the city that uh, try and repair transmissions that maybe shouldn't. And I said, well, that's, that's good to know. And he said, yeah, look, the bottom line is any idiot can take a transmission apart. It's much harder to put it back together in a way that's going to work. You know, likewise, a constant theme I noticed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is that when we sin, we create problems that we are totally unable and unequipped to fix. In one way, I think you could think of the Old Testament as a sort of long-form proof of this concept. Over and over throughout the narrative, we watch as human beings create messes that are far beyond their own ability to repair. And really, if you, if you just sit down and think about it, it should be kind of obvious. I mean, Cain can do a lot of good with the rest of his life, but one thing he cannot do is undo the murder of Abel. Abraham and Sarah, whatever else they may do for the remainder of their lives, cannot repair the damage done to Hagar and Ishmael and to their own family by their failure to trust in God to keep his promises. Not for lack of trying, but simply because it is beyond them, just as repairing the damage that we do is often beyond us. And trusting in our own wisdom when we should be trusting in God's is how we got into this mess in the first place. And now, I'd have you consider, because I always think about this when, when I'm reading through the Old Testament, that the, in the intervening millennia, okay, between Abraham and our day, the, the amount of human knowledge and wealth and technology has increased almost immeasurably. And I mean that literally. I, I don't even know how you would begin to measure the gulf there. And yet, I can't help but notice that as I read through all those ancient stories, that we are still plagued by the same problems, the same divisions, the same temptations, the same sins, and their same consequences. And what that, I think, should tell us is that on our own, even with our near limitless resources and information, at least by Old Testament standards, we are still unable to repair the damage done by sin. The reality this morning is that sin cannot simply be ignored and wished away, and nor can it be undone by human power and wisdom alone. If we want to not only acknowledge our sin, but to be truly freed from the debt and power of sin, then we are going to need another way forward. We are going to need a power and wisdom that is far greater than our own. We need help. We need rescue. And here in John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we have it. A second way forward, and it's simply this, to acknowledge our sin, but then to trust in God, specifically in the atoning death of Jesus, to free us from the power of our sin. Now, I know this is something we say a lot, a lot we sing a lot, uh, it gets tossed around a lot in Christian circles, but I, I want to just take a moment here and ask us what we mean by that practically. L let's walk through that. 
What I mean when I say that is, is this, that first, it means having the courage and honesty to admit to our own sin, to look squarely at what we have done. And listen, John's realistic. He's writing this book to believers, to people redeemed by God and full of the Holy Spirit, and yet he still recognizes that on occasion they are going to fall short. Remember, chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We have to begin by acknowledging the reality of our sin. Second, we then need to acknowledge our need. And as we just recounted, it's not enough to simply confess our sin if we then rely on ourselves to put it right, because, of course, we can't. We simply do not have the wisdom or power to put things right on our own. And so we need to recognize not just the reality of our sin, but the reality of our need, our need for help, for rescue, and ultimately for a savior. And then the third piece of this process is that we need to trust in Jesus specifically as our savior. In our helplessness, we trust that on the cross, his death atoned for our sins. And of course, the good news is that that salvation, that the power of God to save, does not need to be earned. It's not reserved for a special few. We don't need to wait and wonder if if God's going to extend this offer to us. He already has. It's on offer for everyone, for anyone who will receive it. No one who calls on Jesus for help will be denied. And no one who looks to Jesus for rescue will be lost. Now, before I close, I want to make one more important point, one I know Pastor Joel has hit on in the previous weeks as well, and that is this, that this letter is written for believers, to believers, and that suggests that these are not options you choose once and then you're done forever. Uh, When we choose Jesus, I think John would tell us, what we are choosing is a new pattern of life. And that means that these options that we walked through this morning are open to us each and every day, each time we sin. Every time we sin, we have to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to ignore that sin? Are we going to minimize it by focusing on others? Are we going to acknowledge that sin, but then try to work within our own power and wisdom to put it right? Or, this time, yet again, are we going to confess it and trust in the atoning death of Jesus to pay the price for that sin. That means that in this new life we have in Christ, we are not, if if we will do that, if we will take that third option, we will not be free from sin, but we will be free from the power of sin. Okay? If if we accept Jesus as, as our Savior, if we enter into that new life, What I take from this passage is that John is saying, listen, your life will not be free from sin, but it can be free from the power of sin. Let me unpack that for a moment. The power of sin was always in its ability to condemn us before a holy God. God, because he is loving, because he is good, he cannot ignore evil. But all of those sins... Scripture tells us everything, past, present, and future, everything that condemned you before a holy God, Jesus took all of those things 
and he nailed it to the cross. And there on the cross, the power of sin was totally spent. It was exhausted. It was broken. And that means that if you are in Christ, that if Satan tries again to take any sin that you commit and and to drag it before God to condemn you and to accuse you, God, you, you you can't permit them to join you for eternity. Look at what they've done. John says that the moment Satan tries that, we have an advocate who stands at the right hand of the Father and says, no, 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 they are mine. That person is with me. They belong to me. And that sin was already paid for. The price for that has been paid, and it need never be paid again. Sin has no power over that person anymore. Here is what I read John to be saying. That if we believe that, if we believe that that the atoning death of Jesus removed all the power of sin to condemn us, and I think you should, then this is how our lives should look from here forward. Our default should be that we would strive out of gratitude to Jesus to live in obedience to him. Chapter 2, verse 1. He writes it so they would not sin. But when we sin, and we will, 1 verse 8, we should confess it without fear and without defensiveness, 1 9 a, because we know that God is faithful to forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness, 1 9 b. And then, I want to add, I think we should rejoice in our forgiveness, and in gratitude, strive to do better in the future. That, I put it to you, is what John lays out for his audience. That is what it looks like to live free, not from sin, but free from the power of sin. When I was in middle school, uh, all my best friends had Super Nintendos, and I didn't even have so much as a regular Nintendo or an Atari. We had nothing. My parents didn't believe in that. Anytime we asked for one, uh, my dad said we either needed more chores or we needed to play outside. That was the end of the conversation. Uh, What that meant was uh, that when I would get together with my friends and they would want to play video games, I was essentially comic relief, okay? I had no idea what I was doing. My thumbs just couldn't do any of that. Uh, And and at at times, it was was embarrassing. Uh, I just felt like this clearly is a crucial life skill and I just don't have it and my parents don't understand. It came to a head, one birthday party in particular, all my friends were obsessed with this game, F-Zero. It was a futuristic racing game, it had these cool graphics, and it would split the TV screen in half so you could race against each other. Uh, And this was very exciting. And all three of them had it, they played it all the time, they were very good, and so they, they would race each other very competitively. And occasionally, you know, they'd get tired, they'd want, they'd want to laugh, you know, relax a little bit, so they'd have me race somebody, all right? And, 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 they, and I was terrible. Uh, well, eventually, I got tired of this, and so the next time I was volunteered to race, I strategically sat down closest to the console, and I very discreetly half-unplugged my friend's controller. Now, I won that race, I want you to know, it's very important to me that you know that, But full disclosure, you should also know that I recorded a terrible time. 
Uh, I made a number of mistakes and blunders. Uh, there were moments where I still wasn't sure I was even going to complete the race. And in short, I looked like what I was, which is someone who had almost no idea what I was doing. And previously, it needs to be said, in previous races, that had embarrassed me. Previously, it had made me reluctant to play. But not this time. This time, I knew before I even started that my opponent had already been defeated. And so I had fun. Friends, if you have placed your allegiance in Jesus then his death has already, already atoned for your sins. It is finished. Your enemy has already been defeated. And the point of that, a big part of the point of that, is that you would now be able to live your life without fear and without shame. When you sin, you don't need to hide it or hide from it. You can look it in the face and you can confess it. You can repent confident that it will be forgiven because it has already been forgiven. It no longer has any hold on you. My exhortation to you this morning is really very simple. I want you to choose that pattern of life. I want you to live in the freedom that Jesus has purchased. I want you to live a life. I know it won't be free from sin. None of our lives are. But it can be free from the power of sin. That's what I want for you. That's what John wants for you. It's what Jesus wants for you. Choose it. Choose that life and that pattern. Confess your sins. Trust in the atoning death of Jesus and then rejoice because your enemy has already been defeated. Your sins have already been forgiven and you have been purified of all unrighteousness. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we give you thanks. Lord, every time I think about this message, read this message, preach this message, it astounds me and it reminds me, this is just not, so obviously not the product of a human mind. God, we are not on our own wired for grace. Uh, it is something that to me so clearly has the fingerprints of a good and loving and holy God. And Father, we just give you thanks. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us Help us to be the kind of people who strive to live our lives in obedience to you. But Lord, when we sin, and we will, I pray that you would give us the courage to immediately confess that, to recognize what we have done, to confess it to you, to repent of it, and then to trust in the death of Jesus so that we might live in freedom, freedom from the power of sin. God, might we know what that's like. Help us to live our lives in that pattern. In your name we pray, amen.